0: I hate the word concept, you know, because it's like no good isn't necessarily like a concept. It's not like I'm going to be like, all right, let me get some investors. Let me pop up a couple of these, you know, over the, the United States. And then I'll go to Tokyo and then I'll go to Vegas. And, you know, it's not like one of those things. It's a way of thinking and cooking, you know, with the landscape of the Mid-Atlantic. You cook in a way that's fixated on like this landscape, you know, it's a way of thinking. You're like, what is the best possible way that I could cook this food to, number one, make it delicious? Number two, make it nutritious for the guests. And number three, return as much value to to the local food economy as we can.
1: Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. My guest today is Chef Opie Crooks from No Goodbyes at the Line DC Hotel in Washington, D.C. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed American chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists to gain insights into their background, their inspiration, and the unique experiences that have enabled them to become leaders in the world of culinary and mixology. Please follow Flavors Unknown wherever you listen to podcasts and on social media at Flavors Unknown. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter on our website, flavorsunknown.com. Chef Opie Crooks spent 10 years working for Chef Roy Yamaguchi in Atlanta and helped open new Roy's locations. We talk about the cuisine and the products from the Mid-Atlantic region, Is sources of inspiration, and the differences between being a chef at a restaurant and in a hotel. Hi, chef. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast Flavors Unknown.
0: I'm just as excited as you are.
1: Okay, great. Hopefully, you're still going to be excited at the end of the recording. I
0: hope
1: so. So, can you tell us a little bit your culinary education and, and the training that you had?
0: I went to Le Cordon Bleu College of Culinary Arts in Atlanta. When I lived in Atlanta, I worked for Roy Yamaguchi at Roy's in Atlanta. I worked for Roy from essentially 2005 to 2012. I took a year off and worked for Annie Quattrano at Abattoir in Atlanta as well. So lots of hands-on training, if you will.
1: Very good. So if we go back to uh, Le Cordon Bleu that I think, unfortunately, it, it's closed now, correct? Cordon Bleu? As a, Very close. As a school. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. So how was your experience there at the Cordon Bleu?
0: I grew up working in restaurants in Nashville, and I worked for some really good chefs at a young age. And so when I went to school, I had been working in restaurants for a couple of years. I knew the basics. I knew how to make a chicken stock. I knew how to chop an onion. I knew how to Make mirepoix. I knew what a crudité was. That was one of the questions that they asked on the first day of school. Does anybody know what a crudité is? And I was able to answer. So I had a lot of the basics. So I was really able to kind of like take my time in the hands on skills classes and like really focus and really like work towards like creating the recipes that they give you like at a very high level. And so I was able to like really take those recipes and be like, okay, you know, you work in a group setting, but it's like, all right, like, I'll take this recipe, and I'll take this recipe because I was at a you know higher skill level than most of the people that had never worked in a restaurant before, or never eaten at a restaurant before. You know, there are people that I went to Le Cordon Bleu with that had never eaten at a restaurant or never worked in a restaurant. Wow, okay, like, okay, cool. So, I think <laughs> so that they were for you. you know, so,
1: personally, what those years you know brought to you then, in addition to your restaurant experience that you had before getting into the Cordon Bleu?
0: I think it was just, you know, opening my eyes as to, you know, how an actual professional kitchen works. I think that, you know, there was some disparity between the restaurant that was at the school and working at Roy's at the same time. Like there is a massive disparity as to like food quality, where the food comes from, how it gets prepared, you know, to run a restaurant every single day you know i was able to see that like the school restaurant wasn't really up to par and that there were kind of you know different levels of restaurants in the world and you know I, I kind of you know latched onto that idea and like from there on i wanted to always work at the best restaurant in whatever city i was in so
1: and would you recommend like for someone you know interested in a career of um cooking to attend like uh, several years at a cooking school or
0: you know, I feel like that's such a polarizing question. I feel like a lot of chefs are like, you know, take $20,000 and move to France and and learn that way. And I feel like a lot of people are like, no, I had a really nice time at CIA. I think it's just like anything else in the world. I think that like you get out of it what you put into it. And I think if you want to take being a chef very seriously and you want to, you know, I think especially in today's kitchen environment where it's not, you know, I worked at places that it was, you know, you got paid for the day, essentially, you know, you clocked in at three, you clocked out at midnight, you went to work at 11, you left at 2am. And like, that's kind of how I came up in restaurants. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. But like, I think school kind of provides a way to get experience, hands on practical experience while working in a restaurant. So I would say like, I don't think it's for everyone. I think if you're you're the kind of person that wants to work really hard and work 12 hours a day and go to school and work in a restaurant at the same time. I think you'll get a lot out of it. I think if you just go to school, you know, you're essentially going to come out with textbook knowledge, which isn't super applicable for being a chef. Like being a chef requires like that hands-on instinctive approach and like discipline. You know, it's like being a woodworker. You can read all you want about how to, you know, make a boat from wood, but until you actually go to do it, it's not really feasible. So...
1: While you were at school, you said that you work at at Roy, uh, Roy's. So, how did that happen? I mean, this is something that you wanted to to work with him and apply, or you were looking for like different jobs. Uh, you know, I was jobs. looking
0: for a job, and I guess two thousand five. It was kind of a we were in an economic recession, you know. Like it was really hard to find a job with not a ton of experience cooking, and so like you know. I went to a lot of restaurants around Atlanta. You know, I had like a list of like, hey, these are the eight restaurants I'd really like to work in. I went and knocked on the doors. I had a resume. I had a lot of front of the house experience. So they were all like, yeah, you could work here as a front of the house person. And so, you know, I was working as like a busboy at a restaurant that's no longer there, but was there for a really long time. And Buckhead called Nava. It was like a Southwestern restaurant. And my workmate or my schoolmate was like, hey, like, they just had somebody, you know, that quit at Roy's. We're looking for someone, and like back then at Roy's, like a lot of the food came from farms, and like a lot there is an emphasis on you know local ingredients, and that really attracted me to to working there, and that's what made me really kind of like fall in love with buying food from farms. Is that you know these small farmers would come in with you know a box of tomatoes and. You know, we would just buy them and then they'd be on the menu that night. And I was like, man, this is like, this seems like the right way to do it rather than like, you know, at school, it's Cisco or U.S. Foods is dropping off, you know, these pallets of food and then you're cooking it. And, you know, it just made me think that there was a much better way to do things. And so that's what really attracted me to Roy's and really kind of why i worked there for so long, honestly.
1: Yeah, that's 10 years. And it's funny because you mentioned 2005. You know, when you started working there and 2002, it's when I moved from Europe to the US. And I think I discovered Roy's, you know, series of restaurants, probably 2003, four. That was my first, in fact, connection to at that time, what we call maybe fusion food, you know, and I fell in love with it. And, you know, I, so I was so excited when, you know, I on went of the trip to uh, Hawaii. I went to his first restaurant in, yeah, Mexico, the one in Hawaii. Ka, yeah. 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 Exactly. And I left just a message that, you know, I would have loved to have him on the podcast. And, you know, his PR person connected with me and, you know, he followed up. Yeah, and uh, that was very nice of him. And I, I got him yeah. on the show. So that was a very, exciting, a very exciting moment for me. He's a great guy. When you started, I guess he was not always at the restaurant because he had like at that time restaurants all around the country. So when did you have the yeah. chance to, uh, to work with
0: him? You know, I think that... You know, what I really always admired about Roy was like his tenacity to make sure that every restaurant that he had was great. And, you know, he put great chefs in that had worked with him for a long time. You know, like when I worked at Roy's in Atlanta, you know, like one of the chefs had worked at Lebec Finn in Philadelphia. One of the sous chefs had worked at Charlie Trotter's in Chicago. One of the, the chefs had worked for Roy in Hawaii, had kind of come to the mainland with him. So, like, you know, number one, he was like a great, he was great at building talent. And number two, he was in the restaurant every three months for a week at a time or so. So, you know, I was asking him the other day when I saw him, I was like, Hey, how's, how's your travel schedule? He's like, I don't want to travel anymore. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, like when I was, I mean, I was a kid then, you know, and he would show up to the restaurant, you know, three or four times a year. And that's how I, you know, got to know him. And then, you know, I, I started traveling with the company. I was like a corporate trainer. So like, I would go to other Roy's and help them open up. And so like, Roy would be on on the ground opening another Roy's, you know, for a month at a time. So I'd start to get, you know, work really closely with him and got to know him and, yeah, learned a ton. So not only from, like, you know, the, the team that he created in Atlanta, but, like, also, like, you know, everywhere he went, he kind of created those teams of great people. And, like, there was a lot of, like, sharing of ideas and there were a lot of, like, meetings, you know, they used to have, like, a meeting every you know, six months where all the sous chefs would fly to, you know, kind of a central location and exchange ideas. And Roy would talk and he would talk about his philosophy. And every year Roy would do like a cooking class, you know, with the chefs. And he'd be like, these are the new techniques that I'm seeing, you know, from traveling, you know, he really big on traveling, really big on like going and like seeing new cuisines and like seeing new techniques. And, you know, he would do a cooking class every year and he'd be like, okay, like, this is what I'm This is what I'm interested in. This is what I think the food should look like, you know, from an aesthetic, from cooking, from production, from everything. And like, it was a really kind of like hands-on experience. So,
1: okay. And I guess, as you said, that you went with the team and him, like opening restaurants. So you learn probably quite a bit as well when it comes to opening like a new restaurant, correct?
0: Yeah, 100. And then you know, when I worked with Spike, I think we opened up nine different. Restaurants, bars, wine bar, coffee shop, multiple coffee shops really. So
1: remembering all those years and then your own experience after that. So what are and you have like three pieces of advice? If anyone is listening and have the idea to open their own, you know, location. What are like the three most important critical things?
0: Runway. So capital. You know, like knowing how much money you have and how long it's gonna take that it takes three years from the moment that you sign an LOI. You know, if you're going to do any kind of constructions, you know, especially new construction, I mean, three to four years from LOI. And then I would just say like, you can never plan enough. You know, you can never like, you know, imagine how it's going to be because it's always going to be different. You know, no matter how clearly you see it and you clearly, you visualize it, you know, even being in the space until like the guests come in and start to, use the space, you know, you really don't know. I mean, you have a good idea, but you don't know exactly what's going to happen. You know what I mean? I think like being confident enough in the product that you're putting out that like you can kind of pivot to fix small opportunities and not be so fixated on the vision that like you don't change and then you end up making people irritated or not like it or something like that, I think. So being flexible, I guess. is the
1: Any Any advice in like ramping up into like the
0: opening night? Perfect practice makes perfect. You know what I mean? I think like working with the team and making sure, you know, like especially like being a chef, you know, like I can cook, you know, a dish, but it doesn't matter if I can cook it. It matters if the cooks that are going to be cooking it every single night know how to cook it. So I think it's, you know, I think like it's training, it's proper training, it's repetition, muscle memory, making sure people yeah. know the moves, make sure people also like, can't do a thousand covers the first day you open you know what i mean like you got to kind of slowly ramp up you know a lot of people are like you know let's blow the doors open and and do 200 covers the first night you know i'm just like let's do 20 then let's do 40 then let's do 60 then let's do 80 and let's do 100 and then let's do 100 for a week and then you know kind of slowly ramp up and get the team and the staff you know used to that
1: (music) Can you tell us and talk to us a little bit about your food concept at uh, No Goodbyes? What's the, the, the origin of it?
0: The origin of No Goodbyes is it's like kind of an old Mid Atlantic fisherman kind of saying is that you know when people would go out on these like fishing trips they would never say goodbye to their loved ones because they didn't want to say goodbye because if you said goodbye that means you weren't coming back so you know no goodbyes is kind of like when we opened it was kind of at this like kind of like funny and real moment of the restaurant industry where like it was starting to come back, but like, everybody's really kind of like, I'm not really sure if restaurants are going to come back the way that they happened in the past. And so like kind of an all encompassing, like we do want to say, you know, see you later to some old practices, but we also don't want restaurants to kind of continue in the way that they were. So, you know, no goodbyes is kind of a way to say like,
1: that's cool. Okay. You know, we're not saying
0: goodbye, but we're saying like, we want to like welcome people back in to something new, something different, something that is going to be sustainable for the future. You know, when I worked for Chef Spike, he kind of rubbed off a couple things on me. And one of those things is like, I hate the word concept, you know, because it's like, no goodbyes isn't necessarily like a concept. It's not like I'm going to be like, all right, let me get some investors. Let me pop up a couple of these, you know, over the, the United States. And then I'll go to Tokyo and then I'll go to Vegas. And, you know, it's not like one of those things that's, a way of thinking and cooking, you know, with the landscape of the Mid Atlantic. You know, we buy food from farms. You know, we buy fish from from local watermen. We buy, you know, pigs from from local farms that are small scale producers. <laughs> you know, when you cook in a way that's fixated on like this landscape, you know, you, it's a way of thinking. You're like, what is the best possible way that I could cook this food to number one, make it delicious. Number two, make it nutritious for the guests. And number three, return as much value to, lo- to the local food economy as we can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like when you're picking up things, you know, in that constraint, like that's where I think real creativity fr- thrives. And I think like that's where we kind of, you know, are developing a cuisine that's our own is that, you know, we're cooking, you know, with the time and place of the, the time is now, you know, the present moment in the places of Mid-Atlantic and like we're, you know, my team and I were used kind of like our own inspiration around the food to kind of create the dishes. So, you know, it's kind of always inspired by like the ingredient, you know, it's not like I'm looking through, you know, a cookbook and I'm like, Oh, you know what would be great is this halibut dish with morels and fiddlehead ferns and spring garlic. That would be really nice, you know? And then it's like, you know, it's more like, okay, like, ramps came in today. Only other vegetable kind of around is a root vegetable. So ramp is kind of the only green thing that we have, which gets us really excited. So We're like, all right, ramps are on the menu three different ways. And, you know, his, you know, a lot of people would frown upon that. It's like, how can you have ramps on, you know, three different dishes? But for us, it's like the only kind of like green, vibrant thing that we have. And so we're kind of like fixated on that ingredient in that moment. So
1: so the source of inspiration are, are the produce and the ingredients? I think so, 100%. Okay. And so then after that, what's your next step then in creating a dish then?
0: I think it's like, what, what are people going to buy? Like, what are people going to purchase in the restaurant? That's kind of the first piece. So the second piece is, is looking at the rest of the menu. It's like, okay, which station can we put this on? How are we going to execute this dish? Like, what is, you know, like, it's one thing to come up with, like, a great idea we're going to do a ramp spaghetti or a ramp pasta, for example, and then take that idea from ramp pasta to pasta on the menu that gets served to 35 guests in a four hour period. How are we going to make 35 of those while we make all the other items from the station as well in the best possible way? I think that's where a lot of people kind of like, Miss, you know, like they have great ideas for dishes and they have great technique for cooking the dishes, but if people can't execute the vision, then you know you're kind of luck with a subpar product.
1: I guess it's executing, and then the consistency of delivering it, right? As well, right? like throughout the the night or whatever. Okay, how how do you work with those fishermen and you know farmers and and rancher in the in the DC area?
0: It's a relationship, just like any other relationship that you have in your life. It's like you know, it takes work from both ends. You know, you have to talk to them. You have to, you know, like when something happens that maybe you don't like, you have to let them know. And like, they'll let you know if you do something that they don't like. And I think like communication is paramount and I think open and honest communication, like, Hey, I can't take 200 pounds of tomatoes at once. I can only take 50 pounds at once. I can take this. I can take that and like letting The farmer know what works for you, figuring out what works for them as well. You know, a lot of times when I buy pork from Autumn Olive, like, I would love to only buy whole pigs. But if Logan has, you know, 10 extra bellies, it's more advantageous for him to sell me those 10 bellies than it is for him to sell me a half pig. You know what I mean? You know, I also ask people, you know, like, what do you need to move? Is there something that you have an abundance of that I can take? I can create something with and then return that value to our guests and then the growers. So I think like always having kind of an open dialogue between you and whoever you're working with and being open and honest about like what you can pay for something and you know, how much quantity you can actually take and then, you know, doing the same in return and saying like, Hey, is there something that you need me to buy? You know, is there something that it would help me out? It would help you out if I, took, you know, fishermen's catching, you know, rockfish, and then they have bycatch, like, what's the bycatch? Do you want to sell me that? Do you need me to take 50 pounds? Do you need me to take 100 pounds? You know, like, what's the best kind of scenario where we can kind of meet in the middle, and it can be the best situation for both parties?
1: Do you ask as well them sometime, especially I'm thinking of the farmers, and maybe the ranchers as well to grow or, um, you know, like, um, you know, something specific for you?
0: I work with John Shaw at Karma Farms, who's, you know, a really great grower. And like, I've asked him to grow dozens and dozens of different vegetables and say like, Hey, like, I'd really like for you to, you know, have Kyoto carrots or bears and necessities kale or badger flame beets or, you know, any of those kind of like, you know, older varieties and, you know, badger flame being kind of a newer variety of beef, but like having that dialogue and saying like, will you grow this for us, you know?
1: Okay. So, how much time do you spend, like, uh, I don't know, like in a month, you know, in contact with all those individuals, you know, the suppliers, purveyors?
0: I talk to most of them for like, you know, 30 minutes a week. Okay. Sometimes more, depending on like, you know, what's happening, you know, like right now there's not a lot happening, but, you know, sure. So it's a quicker conversation. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's starting, you know, it's like this morning, John texted me. 7 a.m. Bear Necessities Transplants going into the field this week, and He sent me a picture. You know, so it's a kale that I asked him to grow, that he grows. It's really beautiful kale. And at 7 o'clock this morning, he's sending me a picture, you know, like, this is what we got going on. So.
1: Okay. Have you ever thought about like, or maybe you did already, but organizing and creating like a special like dinner menu to celebrate like the farmer or celebrate like, you know, a rancher and so on. Yeah, we've done like, that a bunch
0: food. of times and you know, every, every day for us is kind of the celebration of like our partners and, you know, the great watermen and the great farmers and ranchers in this region. So.
1: What locally produced ingredients that has been particularly
0: inspiring to you recently? I mean, we just got ramps in, which is awesome. So that's obviously kind of like the harbinger of spring, you know, like that means like it's asparagus in a couple of weeks, it's strawberries in a couple more weeks. So like, That kind of really, you know, kind of reignites the spark after you know having carrots on the. Like you know, it's always funny because like, you know, like we we run a roasted carrot dish this time time of year. I'm pretty sure that every other restaurant in the city has a roasted carrot dish, and it probably has you know some sort of yogurt on it. It has some sort of crunch, (laughs) you know, something crunchy on it, and maybe it has something sweet and something spicy. You know, it's like pretty kind of classic thing and like you know everyone
1: and now everyone has ramps now
0: <laughs> yeah exactly so now everyone has ramps but I feel like ramps are a little bit more versatile you know
1: <laughs> and uh, do you uh, work as well with foragers
0: yeah 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 we have a, a couple foragers that that work with the restaurant you know anything from ramps to garlic mustard to you know all kinds nettle.
1: of nettles like, nettle. yeah, yeah yeah
0: nettles Morel season should be ramping up, and then we'll get into chanterelles.
1: So curious about that, because so you are a chef you know at this uh, restaurant, No Good which is within the line DC hotel. And of course, there is as well the service for breakfast, there's lunch, and, and so on. So what's the main difference based on the experience that you have when it was 100% restaurant, the difference between being a chef at a restaurant versus a chef at a restaurant in a hotel?
0: You know, I try my hardest not to think of it as being in the hotel. So what I do is that I, I think of it as its own restaurant, you know, as if we operate kind of independently. But, you know, we do offer breakfast, lunch, dinner, room service, banquets and catering for the hotel. So, you know, the main difference is that there's a lot of moving parts and that it has to that I have to be extremely organized to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks and then I obviously always have a plan for the day and plan for the evening and plan for each service but knowing that that plan is probably not going to 100% be accurate and being able to pivot without you know fixating too much on like oh that's not what I had planned being able to adjust refocus re-engage and then kind of you know attack whatever's happening head-on is kind of the biggest difference you know in a restaurant if you open at five o'clock you know you know that things are going to be pretty standard from, you know, that you get into the time that you open and then, you know, things can start to change, you know, obviously product not showing up or some piece of equipment breaking is something that's going to happen, but you're not going to all of a sudden, you know, have a busy lunch service and do, you know, three times the amount of people that you usually do. And then from three to five, when you usually sell no service room service, you sell a bunch of room service, you know, like there's all these different things and you know it's just about being flexible and focusing on you know cooking the best food possible you know even though you know it's going to go upstairs to somebody's room you know you want to make sure that like it's the best possible version of that item that they can get you know it's the best possible experience and like a lot of people focus on like kind of chefs get into their head and they're like i have to have it this exact way and i think like figuring out how to get it like to be the best possible thing it can be. And then travel is something that you know was challenging for me because I was like why don't we just cook it like this and it's like you know that doesn't really work. So what I do is I take what I've learned from working in restaurants my whole life and apply that to a hotel rather than like having stuff sitting around in a hot box or like having stuff that's pre-made like we just you know offer a little bit of a smaller menu and we make things all a minute you know as you would in a restaurant which and sometimes be challenging for some of the other kind of in the hotel. They're like, Oh, well, when I worked at X hotel, we did it like that. And I'm like, well, this is the first and last hotel I'm ever going to work in. So <laughs> this is the way we're going to do it. And this is the way that we get a really, really great product. And I think that's what matters at the end of the day is like, do we have a great product? And that's the most important thing to me is that we have a product that I feel great about that comes from a local farm that people really, really enjoy. And I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of the goal.
1: Can you have the same level of creativity for, let's say, breakfast and room service versus like a dinner menu, for instance?
0: No, absolutely not. And I think part of that is like, just understanding that like, you know, the most popular breakfast dish is two eggs, bacon, sausage, some sort of potato and some sort of bread, whether it's biscuit or toast, you know? And no matter what we put on the breakfast menu, that's always the biggest seller because that and a yogurt parfait with fruit, top two sellers, no matter what else we put on there. So it's like, okay, like let's make those things delicious, easy to execute. And let's make sure that, you know, everything else that we do is delicious, but maybe doesn't require so much so that when we have those services that, People are expecting, you know, creative, fun, interesting food. We have the bandwidth and the energy to put all the creativity, not, you know, I'm not saying all the effort, but like more effort into these plated dishes that are in the no goodbyes at dinner time. That's kind of like when I feel like no goodbyes really shines is that dinner time. Not that I don't think that all the food is, you know, delicious, you know, but like, a lot of chefs don't get excited about making a delicious burger. You know what I mean? You know, like for me, I'm like, I want to, I want to have a delicious burger. I want to have a delicious chicken sandwich. And I want people to buy a lot of them. And then at night we can get creative and we can use, you know, the kind of free bandwidth that we have from not trying to, you know, change the burger every week or change the chicken sandwich or figure out like what, what lunch specials are, you know, like let lunch be what it is. And we'll focus all of our kind of creative energy and resources on dinner and make that really, really special. So,
1: I would like to uh, pick your brain. And, you know, I always ask my guests to share like uh, a recipe guideline. And I thought that uh, as we are in the springtime, I would ask for a suggestion for like, uh, you know, a home cook like myself, like a a spring dish, OP cook style, you know, so what's unique then, would you suggest them or me to make?
0: I would uh, grab some ramps from a farmer's market. If you're in the DC area, I'm sure that they'll have them at the farmer's market this weekend. If I had a grill, I'd I'd grill them really heavily. I'd kind of char them up, chop them up, cook a little pasta. You know, toss them with toss the ramps with some butter, some delicious cheese. You know, a hard grating style cheese, salt, a little black pepper, some fresh herbs, lemon juice delicious, kind of simple, you know, 10 minute meal. So yeah, I mean, I could make something, you could make something fancier, but you know, ramps and pasta are kind of like inherently delicious and super craveable. So I think that's the best use.
1: So let's switch to the rapid fire questions to uh, finish our conversation. So how would you describe the food scene uh, in uh, Washington DC?
0: I think it's booming. I think that there are so many great, creative chefs in DC that, you know, it's like every time a new restaurant opens, I'm like, you know, oh, do we really need another restaurant? And then, you know, a great chef opens one and you're like, oh man, I love that place. That place is great. So I think that like DC's food scene is booming would be the best word I could describe it with.
1: So if I come back to DC and you and I are going on the tasting tour in DC, so what are like the, five spots that you will take me to? Obviously not no goodbyes because I've been there already and I will go again.
0: <laughs> I would go to Reveler's Hour and then Albie, the Dabney Tess and then Anju probably.
1: Anju, okay. What is your favorite guilty pleasure food?
0: Reese's peanut butter cups, Reese's sticks. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that I would say that's it. Something with chocolate and peanut butter. Okay. Yeah, chocolate and peanut butter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are like the three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career?
0: Oh, that's a tough one. I really like uh, Cooking by Hand by Paul Bertoli. I think that's a great one. I think every young cook that started cooking around the time that I started cooking obviously loved the French Laundry cookbook. Yep. You know, I think that one's that's a winner. Very, yes. very <laughs> classic. And then. Then it's like kind of a toss up. Like, I really like Richard Oldney's books, like the, like his old books, you know, around French Provençal cooking, I think are really, really great. And then, you know, Alice Waters, you know, Chapinese, Art of Simple Food. Those are kind of like all at the tail end of three. But if I had to pick, I'd say Art of Simple Food. I think that's just like such a pure book.
1: What's your biggest pet peeve in the kitchen?
0: Cleanliness, you know, I like I like for things to be clean and organized. I don't like to, like, watch people, like, wipe stuff. Wiping stuff on the floor is probably my biggest pet peeve, you know? Like, someone's, like, working and then they, like, want to clean their station off and they, like, wipe it onto the floor. That's my biggest pet peeve, I think.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. And then beside the classics of condiment, spice, sauces, dressing, you know, the, what do you like to have on hand at home?
0: Ooh, hot sauce. Always hot sauce. Which one Lemons. do you like? Hot sauce. You know, obviously like spiked snake oil is great. Red clay hot sauce is awesome. I always keep a bottle of the shack sorghum hot sauce on hand. I don't know if you've had that one, but it's like a little bit sweet and spicy. I like to have that on hand. Benne seeds, Aleppo, delicious olive oil. Should I keep going?
1: No, no, no. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> that's fine. No, thanks. Thank you very much, Chef. I really appreciate your the time and you know the conversation. So thank you for being, you know, for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening today. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague and subscribe to our newsletter at flavorsunknown.com. I have an exciting news to share with you now. During the pandemic, I wrote a book based on the common threads and insight I had gained into how culinary leaders think. My book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, builds upon this podcast and focuses on key learnings from my discussions with 50 top culinary leaders combined with my experiences in the food industry. Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door offers an insider's look into culinary trends through the words of acclaimed and professionally recognized chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists. The book will be published on November 8th, but you can already pre-order it wherever you buy books online. Thank you in advance for your support. Now, coming back to the podcast, next week, the episode will be with Chef Will Fung from China Chilcano Restaurant by Chef José Andrés in Washington, D.C. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.